Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. My name is Esther G. Chong. I am a second-year hematology-oncology fellow at Loma Linda University Medical Center, and I'll be discussing an interesting case about a young patient with secondary hypertension, but with a malignancy twist. If you are following along with the Beyond the Pearls book, this is case 44, and it was written by Seth Politiano, Eric Shea, and by me, Esther G. Chong. Let's get started. So in this case, we have a 28-year-old female who presents to your clinic. She has a history of high blood pressure. She's currently taking amlodipine 10 milligrams a day and lisinopril 40 milligrams a day. You ask her all your questions and her review of systems is positive for fatigue, headache, diaphoresis, and palpitations. And when you take her vital signs, you see that her blood pressure is 180 over 110 on the right side and 182 over 110 on the left side. Pulse is 104. So this is a young girl with hypertension that is poorly controlled. Usually when you think of hypertension, you think essential hypertension because it makes up more than 90% of hypertensive cases. But while this is the case, there are some times when you should be thinking about secondary hypertension as a cause. What are some of those things? So some things that could alert you are a patient with a young age, a sudden increase in the blood pressure in a patient whose blood pressure is usually controlled, hypertensive urgency in a previously normotensive patient, and difficult to control hypertension despite multiple medications and dose increases. Some common causes of secondary hypertension that should be on our differential at this point are hyperaldosteronism, eochromocytoma, Cushing syndrome, renal artery stenosis, coarctation of the aorta, and thyroid disorders. And don't forget that medications and substances can also be a trigger. Look out for medications like oral contraceptives, NSAIDs, thyroid supplements, and corticosteroids. And of course, those illicit street drugs too. Going back to our clinical vignette, the patient states that she gets anxious throughout the day. And a thorough social history evaluation rules out any abuse of drugs, both prescribed and illicit. So to recap, we have a young female with difficult to control hypertension that has sympathetic symptoms throughout the day. One differential diagnosis that should be running in your mind is pheochromocytoma. This is kind of going to be our meat and bones of our talk today because we're going to do a deep dive into all things pheochromocytomas. So get ready. Pheochromocytomas are rare tumors of the adrenal medulla and usually are present in about 0.1 to 1% of all hypertensive cases. Yeah, it's really, really rare. (laughs) Usually patients are about 30 to 40 years old, and what happens is that overproduction of norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine, and sometimes some other hormones that will produce a stereotypical but variable clinical picture. The presentation is related to catecholamine excess. Usually patients will have headache, palpitations, and diaphoresis, precipitated by a stressor. So something that you might see common is a patient that is going into surgery and then maybe 30 minutes before or even after the surgery, they get all these symptoms, the palpitations, maybe some arrhythmias, the diaphoresis, 
headaches, anxiety. Other symptoms can be orthostatic hypotension, arrhythmias, or coronary ischemia. And so rarely, patients can present with sudden death. Patients that are at risk for pheochromocytomas are those with a genetic predisposition. So some of these conditions are MEN2A, MEN2B, von Hippel-Lindau, neurofibromatosis type 1. With MEN2A disease, remember to also watch out for parahyperthyroidism and medullary carcinoma of the thyroid. For MEN2B, you will also see the thyroid medullary carcinoma, but also they may have those classic marfanoid appearances. For von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, look for patients that also have headaches, vertigo, balance disturbances, retinal and cerebral hemangioblastomas. They are also more predisposed for renal cell carcinomas and cystic diseases of both the kidneys and pancreas. And finally, for patients with neurofibromatosis, they'll have those classic cafe au lait macules and they may have some dermal neurofibromas. Other things are they may have some optic gliomas as well. So how do you diagnose a pheochromocytoma? Well, the answer to this is twofold. First of all, you want laboratory confirmation, and then you want to chase that up with an imaging study to be able to locate where the pheochromocytoma is at. The most sensitive test is a plasma-free metanephrine test, while the most specific test is a 24-hour urine metanephrine test. So if you have a patient with a pretty low pretest probability, then you would want to get the 24-hour urine fractionated metanephrine test. But if you have a patient with a high pretest probability, then you can opt for the plasma-free metanephrine test. Other tests that you can do that are pretty good still are the plasma catecholamine test, the 24-hour urine catecholamine test as well. But there's one thing that you should also be aware of, and that is that you can also have false positives and false negatives. These can be caused by different medications or different conditions. So things that can falsely raise the levels in testing and cause a false positives are patients that are on tricyclic antidepressants, on buspronone, on alpha-1 antagonists or beta blockers, amphetamines, alcohol, and clonidine withdrawal. There's a lot of other things too, so be sure to look those up. Other things that can cause a false negative test are alpha-2 agonists and calcium channel blockers. So patients should be off of any of these medications when doing these tests. So an update in our patient's clinical vignette. We sent her to get a 24-hour urine metanephrine test, and voila, it is four times the upper limit of normal. So now what do we do? Remember what I said before. Diagnosing a pheochromocytoma is a two-fold process. The first is laboratory, and then we chase it up with imaging studies. So usually we'll do a CT, abdomen and pelvis, to try to see if there's the presence of any adrenal masses. But you can also do an MRI. In our patient, we decide to order a CT, abdomen and pelvis. And what do you know? She has a 3.3 centimeter mass on her left adrenal gland and she has now been diagnosed with pheochromocytoma. So now, let's go on to talking about how to treat patients with pheochromocytoma. So the treatment of pheochromocytoma is also a two-step approach, medical, then surgical. And then in medical, you can also break this down into two steps as well. 
as you can see, a lot of the theochromocytoma picture is a two-step process. So let's talk about the medical portion. In the medical portion, you want to be able to start with alpha blockers like phenoxybenzamine or prazosin. And these are usually given about two weeks preoperatively to lower the blood pressure. Then once the blood pressure is really controlled, probably like less than 140 over 90, then you follow this up with a beta blocker. It's important to go in this order. First alpha blocker, then beta blocker. Because if you only give the beta blocker alone, then this can cause vasoconstriction and hypertensive crisis. And then once the patient's vital signs are stable, the patient can undergo resection of the chromocytoma, wherever it may be. And then it's kind of a waiting game. Usually it'll take up to two weeks for a patient to become normotensive and their vital signs become normalized. And while we do our best with the alpha blockade and the beta blockade preoperatively, sometimes when patients are getting their surgery, they can experience various vital sign abnormalities, which may agents while they're in the operating room to help maintain good vital signs. All right, so let's go back to our patient. So the patient was started on phenoxybenzamine, then propranolol. So like we discussed, first an alpha blocker, then a beta blocker. After this, she underwent an uncomplicated surgical resection of her mass. And then you see her two weeks post-op and wow, she has a blood pressure of 126 over 84 without any medications and she hasn't had any of her initial symptoms. Let's wrap it up. So here are some pearls to remember about pheochromocytomas. Number one, remember to suspect a pheochromocytoma in a young patient with refractory hypertension and especially in one with a genetic predisposing condition. The workup for these patients should include a laboratory portion as well as an imaging one to be able to locate the tumor. And then for treatment, remember to give both alpha and beta blockade and in that order before you resect the mass. And our podcast isn't called Beyond the Pearls for Nothing. So let's go a little deeper. And so some pearls that kind of go beyond the ones that you should already know for your boards or for your clinical studies are the following. So remember, pheochromocytomas can present clinically with an elevation in blood pressure and pulse after starting monoamine oxide inhibitors, tricyclic antidepressants, and during surgical procedures or anesthesia induction. Another rare familial syndrome that includes pheochromocytoma is the Carney complex of pheochromocytoma, gastrointestinal stromal tumors, or called GIST, and pulmonary chondromas, or Leydig tumors in males. Also, remember to consider genetic testing for multiple endocrine neoplasm, or the MEN syndromes, also for neurofibromatosis and von Hippel-Lindau syndrome in a patient with a family history of chromocytoma. These should also be tested in a patient where they have bilateral pheochromocytoma disease, extra adrenal or metastatic disease, and a diagnosed at a really young age, or if there are other clinical findings suggestive of each of these syndromes. Usually, malignant pheochromocytomas are indolent, but sites of metastasis include the liver, the lung, the bone, and regional lymph nodes. Unfortunately, the treatment is usually palliative in nature because the tumors are not usually chemosensitive and surgical therapy followed by medication is a treatment of choice. 
You may hear of testing for venyl mandelic acid or VMA, but this shouldn't really be performed in a biochemical workup for pheochromocytoma because of its low positive predictive value and poor sensitivity compared to the metanephrin testing. Also, to minimize the possibility of obtaining false positive results during plasma testing, the patient should have an IV line placed and then laid down in the supine position for at least 30 minutes before drawing the sample. In cases of suspected pheochromocytoma, where the clinical suspicion is high but laboratory testing is not conclusive, like for example, elevated levels but not in the range you would expect for a pheochromocytoma, try sending a serum chromogranin A level or perform a glucagon stimulation test or a clonidine suppression test. When IV glucagon is administered, patients with pheochromocytoma have a rise in blood pressure or plasma catecholamine levels. In the clonidine suppression test, baseline serum norepinephrine and epinephrine is measured. Clonidine is administered and serum norepinephrine and epinephrine are measured at hourly intervals for three hours. In patients with essential hypertension, the administration of clonidine suppresses the levels of circulating catecholamines after administration, but the levels usually increase in those with pheochromocytoma. MIBG scan or the meta-iodine-benzyl-guanidine scan is a more specific but less sensitive imaging study than the CT or MRI, and it's usually performed when you suspect extra-adrenal disease. But before you do this scan, you should do a full medication screen because it can reduce the possibility of false positive testing. Another pearl is that after surgery, patients should undergo repeat biochemical testing in a week to ensure normalization of levels. Then, it's usually repeated annually to monitor for recurrence, and the duration of monitoring is influenced by the presence or absence of familial syndromes. It may be difficult to diagnose pheochromocytomas in pregnant patients because it could be confused with preeclampsia. In addition, pregnant patients can present with supine hypertension because the uterus will push against the tumor. Another pearl is that pheochromocytomas can also secrete other hormones such as ACTH, calcitonin, oxytocin, and vasopressin, so the initial presentation can be varied. And so while we say that with catecholamine release symptoms, you should have a high clinical suspicion of pheochromocytomas, remember that all presentations don't look the same. And finally, Patients with SSR-positive tumors can undergo peptide receptor radionuclei therapy with 177-LU dotapate. For more pearls and for more information regarding pheochromocytomas, I would highly recommend that you refer to this chapter, chapter 44 of the Beyond the Pearls book, for both high-yield and clinically relevant pearls and discussion. Well, that's it for this chapter. Again, my name is Esther G. Chong, and it was a pleasure being able to discuss pheochromocytomas with you. Until next time, bye! Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.